Hi everybody, it is Jason here. Just wanted to give you a quick bit of information. This is a super fun episode with Steve Young, Dave Wisnant, and we also speak a little bit with Hank Beebe on the phone. Um, uh, this is a follow-up to our episode about bathtubs over Broadway from a few months ago. Turns out they are now releasing the soundtrack on vinyl. Um, I'm actually waiting to get my copy right now, and I'll probably do like a little bit of an unboxing on the YouTube channel. Um, and so that'll be super fun. And uh, this is actually officially coming out today, the 26th. Uh, you can go to mondotees.com, um, and I believe at some point uh, mid-March it should be in record stores as well. But you can uh, order it now on mondotees.com as soon as I have my copy. I'll talk to you guys about it. Uh, but this is a really fun episode, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So here you go. Enjoy. <music> I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 2020. The album, The Bathtubs Over Broadway soundtrack on vinyl. This week, my guests, in person this time, Steve Young and David Wisnett. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for having us. So Thank Steve, you. of course, is the star of the documentary. David, you directed the documentary. I happen to love the movie, and I was so excited when you originally agreed to speak with me, Steve. But now you're here in Burbank temporarily yes i don't plan to relocate here but it's Fair. very nice yeah it's not you bad. never know yeah, i never know as I, parts of la go it's not bad yeah we're driving over here and i'm looking at these little houses thinking well, that's not bad yeah. i wonder how much those go for too much. all right i've spoken too soon i'm moving here. oh okay sweet wonderful well I, we, we, we've we've done our job so <laughs> you've just shown me what the 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 album looks like so i guess we're gonna wait to release this till uh when we have the official release date but it looks beautiful Thank you. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, I want to talk to you, since Steve, since we went so much about like what the quest for these albums meant to you. We talked a bit about the movie. I want to know, Deva, what interested you, how you got involved, what interested you in this, and w why you chose the angle you did on telling the story the way you did. Uh, well, yeah, I was not immediately drawn to industrial musicals the uh -huh. same way Steve was. Uh -huh. In fact, he... Um, when we worked together at The Late Show, I did not know that he collected these. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it was after I left the show that he sent me a CD with some of his favorites. And uh, and I looked at this list of, of corporate songs and I thought, there's no way I'm going to like this. Like, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, uh, what should I, I'm afraid. How do, how do I be polite to him? Yeah, right I'm afraid to listen. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I didn't for a long time. And when I finally did... Uh, the song My Bathroom was the one that really just, I yeah. mean, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is real, mm -hmm. you know. And then it really was the thing that sucked me in. And, and, and then I started paying a lot more attention to what Steve was doing. And and um, <laughs> and with the film, you know, I, I kind of wanted to take people on the same journey that he went on, which is, you know, first seeing something, you know, corporate musicals, something that looks so ridiculous. Um, and you know, something to make an easy joke about and then mm -hmm. take them on the same journey that he took, which was as he goes to meet these people, he starts to connect to how talented they were and yeah. how much they cared about doing a good job. And it just opens up a whole other a whole other uh, channel into his life of um, connecting with these people. So that's uh, that's what I aim to do with the movie. And, and in fact, a lot of people, uh, early people that we talked to, funders and things, didn't want Steve to be in the film. Really? Yeah. What was what was their reasoning? What's what's that about? I think people expect documentaries to be very educational, and they they huh. wanted it to be a very kind of, 
you know, here are some experts talking about business history mm-hmm. and and entertainment history and where industrial musicals fell within that. that and sounds I didn't. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I did interview some experts, and and mm-hmm. what they said was really uh, valuable uh, as far as research, but. Um, when I put them in an early cut of the film, it just it was like, this is not the movie I want to make. It could have been so dry. Even exactly. if it's interesting, it's got to be so dry. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I knew once I started talking to him about this mm-hmm. and he started to kind of, I would see emotion in him when he was talking about these composers who wrote these industrial shows. And mm-hmm. I just like, that's not the guy I knew at Late Show. You know, <laughs> who, who is this guy who gets teary talking about corporate musicals and his fellow man uh, where did this guy's emotion come from that, yeah that used to be hidden under a bushel somewhere yeah you know what's interesting is i've interviewed a number of people who've worked on snl and you can see there's something that runs through all of them interviewed a number of letterman writers and i think there's there's also something and i don't know what it is what do you think it is that is at your core as because you've said very much that you're, you're you you you've lost maybe not lost how did you put it uh, your taste in comedy oh, or comedy damage comedy damage yes thank you so <laughs> do you think that's common with the Letterman folks I do but there people naturally have varying degrees of it mm-hmm. I know people who I completely respect and love personally and professionally and comedically who seem much more adept at enjoying. Uh, a comedy show or movie sure. than I am, and I'm sort of sorrowful about that because how did I get it so so bad and ugly? I mean, I'm happy to laugh at wonderful in the moment fun with people, mm-hmm. and Dave will tell you there are things that I laugh at, but uh, I, I suspect it is very widespread and it comes out in different ways and different people but I think it's anybody who goes into a job like this is going to get some version of it for sure but I, I do also like that the movie explores then that you needed a new not just emotional like you need a new emotional input like this new way to kind of receive whatever it is the rest of the world is putting out there and I, I love that it's corporate musicals though. <laughs> yeah, well as the lyric said the kicks just keep getting harder to find and when I found this corporate musical stuff I thought that is the ultimate kick it is yeah. just so extravagantly improbable and that would have been pretty great, but then you'd think, well, it's probably horrible. Mm-hmm. But then, and some of it was, but sure, so much of it was like, oh my God, who are these geniuses putting the, together these songs about bathroom tile and uh, tractors? And I, I don't, I, I kind of wish I could hang out with these people because they seem great. Uh-huh. Bowling in space. <laughs> Bowling in <laughs> space. Bowling in space. <laughs> that's, that's one of the ones I don't have yet. My uh, friend oh, really? John Ward has. <laughs> uh, the Astral Line Challenge. Oh, okay. The, all right, so if any, of really your, good. if any of your listeners go, oh, I think I got a 1971 Brunswick Bowling <laughs> Sales Meeting album somewhere, <laughs> that that would be a, a tremendous... But you've heard it, though? Oh, yeah. There's I mean, enough sharing that that actually is out there. We, but... that, that is a wonderful thing about collectors, I think, in general, and mm-hmm. certainly in this field, is one person finds something new and they can't wait to share it That's with nice. other people. Yes, uh, <laughs> John Ward and I over the years many times have oh my god, I just found this thing here. I'm going to dub it off and send it to you right away. Or mm-hmm. Don Bowles, the punk rocker, uh, he has that record Gould Growing that you see in the movie. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. when he found that, 
it must have been 20 years ago now, I remember he called me up and started playing it over the phone. He <laughs> couldn't wait for me it's to amazing. hear it. Yeah. Like, I, I apologize for not knowing, um, but were you a director on Late Show or what? Oh, no. No. I was an editor on Late Show. You were an show. editor on yeah, Late Show. Yeah, okay. that's how I got, my, I got my start editing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bathtubs was the first movie that I directed, but I've produced documentaries before. Okay. Um, but this is my directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love nonfiction. Anything where you get a chance to tell a great story that's, you know, doesn't matter what it is. But um, mm-hmm. docs and comedy docs are my, I, that's really what gets me going. It's so different, though, too, when you're the filmmaker because you're following somebody having an emotional journey. But you then have to figure out how much of that is a part of the film. Uh, I'd yeah. like to know if, like, if you can maybe remember when you're like, oh, this is what it is now. Like, if you could remember when you found the crux of it. Yeah, it was pretty early on. We went to Chicago mm-hmm. and uh, we learned that someone Steve had been looking for for years and who he assumed was uh, had passed away, that mm-hmm. he was alive. Uh, um, and so we went to, to find him and... Uh, that meeting and then um well yeah so that was the big thing first when i saw these two guys together and um and just steve's joy meeting him and the kind of the thrill of the chase all of that was so great and then there's another moment where he uh is on stage with the woman who sang my bathroom Mm -hmm. originally and they're together seeing it and and she started to cry at at, at you know the, so the audience loved the song a huge you know round of applause after and she was so moved uh that she, her work was being appreciated mm-hmm. that um that she started to cry and that made me cry and that's really when i thought okay we've this is something unusual and i'm i am following steve's story and it is going to be about him meeting these people mm-hmm. and nobody can tell me different <laughs> yeah uh i'd like to talk a little bit about the a hand either of you had in making the record or i i or what's on the record that we can talk about oh yeah the, so the the record has our, some of our favorite songs from the movie mm-hmm. um, and some of the original song. Well, all of the original songs, Great. Like three original songs and some of the original score uh, that Tony DiLorenzo wrote, which is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a it's a great mix of everything. And uh, and some let's see, should we look at a song list track? List? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I got to say uh, the everybody involved with the soundtrack and the vinyl release a plus first class people who like us and anyone we want to work with want to do the best possible job and, yeah and that has been thrilling to see that come out they are sweating the details and it's beautiful That's yeah nice to hear. mondo is the oh, okay company. yeah yeah um and they just yeah that was was really cool to be able to work on everything the album cover and the booklet and and mm-hmm. they were they allowed us to let our spirit kind of shine through the mm-hmm. the movie's spirit um be the guiding force and they also really love the idea that uh they kind of wanted it to look like something that you would actually find um digging through records you yes. know to have kind of a vintage oh, so retro good. vibe mm-hmm. yeah um so that was the guiding principle at the beginning mm-hmm. and yeah they just uh they let us put what pretty much whatever we wanted on there you know that's so good uh, yeah um so 
the uh, Gould Growing song uh-huh. is on there, the disco one. And, of course, you have to have My Bathroom, yeah. which is uh, yeah. the one that, for so many people, it's, can this be real? This can't be real, but it's so weirdly good. Yep. It still blows me away. still yep. blows me away. And I've introduced a number of friends to it, too. Oh. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. part of the joy of it. But I, I just love being able to call up Hank Beebe, uh, who's been working on this stuff uh, bef- since well before I was born. He's 93 now. Uh-huh. We co-wrote the big finale song together. But I love to call him up and say, Hank, uh, 53 years after Diesel Dazzle, the Detroit Diesel Engine show, was done and you thought it was in your past there is a pressing plant right now pressing vinyl records with the diesel dazzle song on it so again. nuts yep. yeah that's got to feel good to him yeah. yeah the um oh well the songs that steve and john ward sing together mm-hmm. that they know by heart that they don't even need the music um in the movie to sing together yeah those songs are on there um the lipton on the move yep. and you say you got this big fantastic presentation <laughs> now i'm just quoting the movie I don't, <laughs> I don't even think about the real song anymore but uh yeah, like yeah. the My Insurance Man, one of the very early ones I found, and you see Dave Letterman holding that one up on mm-hmm. the Letterman show, and that was in the days when I thought this may be nothing more than just a, a temporary shot in the arm for a comedy segment. Of course, but, yeah. Uh, but as I say in the movie, it would be weeks or months later, and I'm still singing that song, I'm <laughs> still singing Diesel Dazzle to myself, something is going on. Oh, yeah. You're definitely kind of screwed when you listen to uh, the album because it's, yeah. you know, these songs are going to be stuck in your head and you're going to be singing a weird thing about, yeah, Lipton tea or, uh, yeah, diesel yeah. engines. And uh, tractors. We always love the tractor songs. Yeah. There's one record you see flash by in the, in the movie which has songs from a Ford tractor show by... Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach mm-hmm. before they were famous for Fiddler on the Roof. So we were pleased to put in wow. a little bit of uh, uh, historical fun there, and it's a great song. I mean, that's the thing is you could put together infinitely large compilations of mediocre to bad songs sure. from this. Sure, sure. But there, I think, David, you had a lot of agony figuring out which of the thousands of songs that I gave you, and many of which were just terrific how do you figure out what to put in? Really? Yeah. 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 I, I use I use the ones that would help tell the story, actually. So if, mm-hmm. if the lyrics could help describe what was going on in our story, then that was one way that I would say, okay, that one's going in. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, which is pretty funny when those lyrics were originally supposed to be about, <laughs> you know, a tractor musical or something. Yeah, but, um, like when uh, I'm talking about, I looked for Sid Siegel for years, and I thought he was gone, but now I'm driving up to his home to meet him, and the song is from his American Standard bathroom fixture musical, but it's, they said it couldn't be done, said <laughs> it couldn't be done. Like the way that she wove... <laughs> those themes from yeah. decades-old industrial tunes in to comment on what's happening in the movie, I think is one of those things that by the second or third viewing of the movie, you're starting to realize the magnitude of how many great creative things are happening in this film. Well, yeah, that's just it. It's, like, it's such a dense documentary. Um, it's also a very New York documentary. Like It just feels very New York. Even though you're traveling everywhere, it's inevitably going to feel very New York. Uh, was there any eye toward that as a flavor? I mean, both having been in New York for an extended period of time? 
Yeah, I mean, it was pretty inherent to the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just being able to be backstage at the Late Show, that just sure. Late Show feels very New York, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. um, we were the only crew that ever got to film backstage. Um, so that was pretty cool. And, and just having that vibe in there, you know, Steve's daily life back when that show was on. Um, yeah, just, I love New York. It, and then, yeah, Broadway, yeah, and, the and whole so thing. And so many people worked in Broadway, but also in this shadow world of industrials out of New York. Uh, Hank Beebe was based there. Michael Brown, who you see a little bit of and mm-hmm. hear a little bit of. Sid Siegel and the whole bathrooms crew, that was Chicago. That was the other big right. center of gravity. So it was great that uh, we've managed to connect these two worlds. Uh, just recently I was up in Portland, Maine, where Hank lives, mm-hmm. and I had introduced him and Pat the woman who sings my bathroom by email and they had begun a long email correspondence and I'm such a fan of your work I'm such a fan of your work and it's completely sweet and sincere but when I was up there I got them on the phone together and it was just such a bizarre surreal sweet thrill to hear these people who are dear to me now becoming more dear to each other as well and I, I was telling them afterwards I feel so glad that I've connected the New York royalty to the Chicago royalty. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's huge. I, I love this stuff. Uh, do you, is there... Uh, was there any hesitation on part of any of these people when you originally approached them? Just because you're a dude who's writing for Letterman for so long? And... Yeah, well, you even <laughs> see that when in the movie I get to Sid Siegel's house. Yeah, yeah. And I had spoken to him on the phone a couple of times, but it was very much the, the case usually that people are not sure what to make of this. It makes no sense to them that somebody from the outside world wants to ask them about this. And when they hear, it's a guy who writes jokes for David Letterman, the red flags go off like, somebody is coming here to make fun of me. And I I don't want to tell this person, no, I won't talk to them, but but there's this inbuilt caution. And you see it with Sid when I get there. Even then, I'd talked to him on the phone, but he was not quite sure what this all was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely warmed up over the course of that shooting day, too. Right. Yeah, which was beautiful to see. And then they're singing, you know, the fact that <laughs> Steve knew all of Sid's songs, you yeah. know, and then Sid still remembered how to play them without the music so at all. Good. So the two of them just start this whole impromptu singing thing together, and it was just like, I can't believe this is happening. Mm-hmm. This is like, it's so beautiful. I did you hang back yeah. as a director, or did you like have a hand in any of it, or did you just totally hang back? I mean, oh, as far as like, like the communicating, way... like hey, you know, the, keeping it relaxed, or did you have was Steve there to really do all that? Part oh of it? no, no. I mean, I tried to let them do what was natural. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think at one point Steve said, "Would it be okay if I?" If I ask him if he'll play one of the songs, okay, I'm okay, like, okay. yes, definitely, that's okay. <laughs> yes, uh, <please>. You know, <laughs> but we yeah. always went into those shoots uh, prepared. Like we would work up together. Like here's questions I naturally want to ask Sid sure, Siegel, and sure. Dave would say those are good, but don't forget also here's an angle that I think would help us. Um, so she was always very aware of trying to great. maximize. Uh, the value of what we would get for her storytelling and not just me being my fanboy guy. Of course. So, so, uh, yeah. so, <laughs> that can be pretty specific. Yeah, like, Sid, in the, the second measure of this uh, hospital supply song, <laughs> I've always wondered why you'd... Uh, we don't need to put too much of that in the movie. All the brief bits of it can be charming. But Deva was always very aware, like, 
we would we would shoot for a while and stop and then she'd come over and tell me I want you to ask him this and maybe you could go back and ask this a different way to get because she you don't know what you're gonna get in the biggest sense but you want to give yourself every chance to have the the right pieces to work with later right as a as an editor I mean mm. you had to have been cutting it in your mind the whole time but it's harder with a documentary so how do you do that uh well yeah i mean that's the thing you just prepare as as well as you can going in Mm -hmm. um and the thing about i don't know if it's a blessing or a curse being an editor uh out in the field directing because i would i would be hearing things and there would be a mental checklist like okay yeah got that got that got that and and maybe we shot something where um something wasn't exactly perfect but i could my editor brain could go well i could solve that by doing xyz and so we don't have to actually do another version of you know him walking down the street or whatever i'm just throwing that out there but um I would know I could solve those problems. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe it makes your shooting day shorter and things like that. But I don't know. Were there, I think I know the answer that there were some, but do you remember specific moments where something happened in front of your eyes while we were doing something in in the back of your mind? You had a little, that, I'm 100% sure that's going to be in the movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like when Hank was talking to us, um, we were doing our interview with him, and he mentioned the story about his mother uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not appreciating what he did and saying it was just like commercials. And that was no one, you know, in all the interviews we'd done so far, nobody had really expressed that before. And it was just that thing of, oh, my God, thank God somebody's talking about this. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it in such a way that it's so poignant, hit this story. And I knew that was going to be in the film. Right. For sure. Well, yeah. I mean, there's got to be also <clears throat> a level of, you could probably both connect with that in some way, right? I mean, as a comedy writer, some people are going to think your work is frivolous. As a documentary filmmaker, people are going to be like, well, why aren't you making real movies? Which, believe me, I know how that goes. Oh, yeah. I you think know? hopefully we're at a time in history where more and more people are thinking the best documentaries are the top-ranked movies. Right. It certainly they are getting be better. Tilted yeah. that way. But, yes, I, I do feel like... I'm, I guess I'm not Shakespeare. I'm just writing cheap jokes about whatever is in the news. Uh, and, and that can be great and all that. But yeah, uh, I did feel a kinship with these people who had steeled themselves to the apparent reality that nobody would ever care about or know about even what they had done in the best work of their lives that had enthralled an audience on one beautiful spring morning in 1967 was gone forever right. in any essential way. And and you write so much at a show like Letterman, and most of it doesn't get used. And most of what does get on is kind of forgotten and stale a few days later if it's very topical. So your successes are intense but fleeting. Yeah, And so right. that's part of what David realized was another layer of this movie of creative people looking eye to eye at each other about the the, the challenges of remaining inspired when you're up against that. Yeah. And creating something that people think of as disposable. I mean, even the companies themselves thought of these things as disposable. They didn't really save them. them. You know, the company archives aren't full of this stuff at all. It was the collectors, really, and the people who were in the shows who saved the material. But yeah. comedy is like that, too. And and I would say people making comedy films, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's so easy to think of it as just this disposable, quick entertainment and that there's nothing deep there. But the best ones have that level too yeah i was talking at a a presentation i gave a while back about how 
I thought it was a very rare thing for a film to reach the simultaneous top level peaks of drama and comedy but it can be done and I gave the example of you know if you're at a funeral and you're you're weeping with deep grief but someone tells a hilarious anecdote about the deceased and then everyone is laughing harder than they thought they could laugh mm-hmm. at me mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that that uh, people like Deva can hit and it is yeah. elusive but when you hear it and see it you know it right well and I I, I did not know what to expect when I turned it on I mean <laughs> I, you see this room so obviously I had a, a vested interest in Oh, these will be funny comedy records. Yeah. Will, but, uh, and even, I even made a documentary where I had to, like, discover along the way, oh, I'm being an idiot. These people are sincere. I should appreciate that. I've even gone through that, and I'm still like, no, this could be a funny thing where it's a bunch of dumb records. And just, you know, what, two minutes into it, I'm like, oh, this is entirely different. And I <laughs> needed to shift gears. And it, I don't know. It's just so beautifully sincere. And it's about sincerity. That's hard. That's that's another thing that's hard to do is make a movie that's about sincerity. Yeah. And it's also hard to open up, I think, and be sincere as a comedy person. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, there. well, luckily, having yeah. worked with Deva at the Letterman show for a period of a few years when she was there, and we kind of realized, oh, we, we kind of like the same things and enjoy working with each other. But also I knew professionally she was top shelf in terms of her uh, skills but also her her style and and I thought this is exactly the right person to attempt to tell this story and I have no idea what it will be but I will say I'll, I'll go wherever you want to go on this so I don't know how many documentary subjects have that confidence right. in the person who's tr- taking on a story that involves them so luckily I was completely confident and as I always say my confidence was completely justified so <laughs> Win-win. Well, there's so much... It's all about discovery, too. It's just you have to let so much of it air, like, just and let it happen. Yeah. You know, there can be the temptation... There was a temptation when I didn't know what the hell I was doing was to try and influence it way too heavily. But uh, I'm I'm just curious, in your brain, how how different was the original... And maybe I've already asked this in some way, but the original story in your head to what you ended up with? Well, I think at the very beginning, I I thought that we would be making more fun of the companies and this mm-hmm. whole concept. I really did think that it was, I, I because I I didn't know these people yeah. yet, you know, um, and all I heard was the music, and it, the music was nuts, um, and <laughs> and I wasn't a huge Broadway fan either. Okay. So, you know, I didn't I didn't appreciate Broadway enough when I started this project. And that's been one of the crazy things about doing. I mean, that's why documentaries are so wonderful, because if you're doing your research, you're going to have to learn something. Mm -hmm. And so I came away with a a much uh, I mean, I I really appreciate Broadway musicals in a way and never did before. And and uh, and what it takes to write something like that, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I definitely did not expect it to be as much about Steve and the people he was meeting when, yeah. when I when I thought we would do this. I just thought this is a gigantic section of the entertainment business that people don't know yeah. about. That's really what it was. And nobody's done this before. Like no we somebody has to tell this story. Right. So that's that's really what started it and then this you know the story took on a life of its own, which was beautiful and great. Thank mm-hmm. God. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you hedged your bets at the beginning, as I recall. Yeah, I did. The way you were shooting it. Really? Yeah. I, I, so, you know, Steve goes to talk to all these people, and I shot the interviews with two cameras so that that person, whoever we were talking to, would be in their own single in case I needed to cut Steve out of the movie. Ah. <laughs> The director's cut. No Stevian. Yeah, but, but because so many people have been saying, no, no, I don't know if, you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to get this funded to tell this story? Uh-huh. And if they're all saying, like, he, they don't think he can carry it, um, I, maybe I should listen to that. But I did, you know, my heart of hearts, I knew what I wanted. Mm-hmm. But I did at the beginning you know, cover my bases mm-hmm. in case I had to do, in case the only version that people wanted was the educational one. I was like, well, yeah, it's still yeah. worth telling that, you know. The other backup option is you just sit Dave down for 10 minutes, have him say, yeah, no, uh-huh, and then you just cut mm-hmm. to David Letterman, and then you sell it based <laughs> off of that, and that wouldn't be as good a movie. I'm sure no. somebody would have wanted I'm that. sure somebody yeah. would have, but yeah. uh, would not have been um, good, I guess, is, is <laughs> what I'm looking for. Yeah, well, it's interesting. People see a finished movie and complain about it because it's not what they would have made. I know. I don't get that yeah. at all. Yeah. It drives, yeah. drives me nuts. I just take the thing for what it is. Like it or don't like it, move mm-hmm. on. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I love it and people should... I, I, I think it's still probably on Amazon Prime to stream. I don't know. It was when I watched some it. Form, yeah, some form it's of on Amazon. Ne- and it's on Netflix. It is on Netflix in right the now. US. Okay. okay. Yeah, iTunes. and then iTunes and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and or I'll we come ch- to your home and act it out. <laughs> 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 yeah, we want to get somebody to let us do DVDs, but the, we have an interesting distribution ah, situation but yep, that's my that goes. big dream yeah, have you ever heard of the word interesting it's a euphemism <laughs> <laughs> but yeah anyway subject change how long into the production did you decide for the final the finale the musical number how long did you know that was going to happen that was toward i mean so we've it took us four years to make the movie yep. and that started coming about in the last like year and a half okay and it was how you know oh it would be First of all, it's, we have to do some kind of musical thing at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he started meeting these people, it was like, well, they still have so much to offer too. And and Steve and Hank need to write a song together. It was all, it just kind of came together like this should be uh, a kind of a Muppet movie ending where we meet all the, uh-huh. we see all the people that we met along the way. And uh, yeah, but I mean, it took, it took a lot of planning and just one shoot day. On the Warner Brothers right. back lot, yeah. Oh, but, is it, oh, that's where you shot it. Okay, I was wondering. I could, yeah. I could never tell which city. Which is not too is. far from here. No, right? not at all. Yeah. No, I love uh, it over there. Yeah. It was that was a really intense day, but we had planned so much before that going in that mm-hmm. it was you know we were able to get most of it done. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> shocking and thrilling in many ways. First of all, people like Pat and Sandy. Uh, in their 70s, mm-hmm. thought that their showbiz careers were well behind them. Sure. But no, here they are, 6 a.m., and they're in a makeup trailer on the Warner Brothers uh, back lot, and yeah. we're gearing up for so movie magic. Look, there's cameras on cranes and people with walkie-talkies. <laughs> this is all happening. Uh-huh. And when we did the vocals for the big finale song and mm-hmm. everyone's there... And, and that was near here too, wasn't it? Was mm-hmm. that Burbank? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like this sweetest, most surreal sl- afterlife slash family reunion where all these people who sort of cosmically know each other mm-hmm. but had maybe never met in actual real life before were all so enthralled to be together. 
That's so yeah. good. The punk rock guys uh -huh. could not have been more starstruck to meet Pat and Sandy That's, from the bathrooms. Yeah. Coming. I love it. Yeah. Uh, are, are any of those folks out here, uh, any of the people who are involved in those records? Because I'm, I'm not sure how spread out they are around the country. Um, yeah, the, L.A. seemed to have much less of this. Mm -hmm. It wasn't one of the big centers of gravity for industrials, but people do, as they do, end up out here. Uh, Melody Rogers... A uh, friend of ours mm -hmm. uh, who was mostly on the Chicago scene, although had some New York work also, and Hank Beebe worked with her. Mm -hmm. uh, she's out here now, and uh, some of my record collector friends are out here. Sure. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Um, I would like to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, maybe we can talk with Hank for a minute. Oh, yes, he'll be delighted. So if you wouldn't mind, I've, I've gotten um, a bit of Steve's story before and today, got a bit of Davis' story. I'd like to know a little bit about your career as a whole. Well, it's a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm three years old, and I've been in the business for 70 years. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot. I was brought up in a middle-class family, and uh, I had talent and got, had musical training and all of that. And from 16 years old on, I wanted to be a professional composer. I was advised against it by everybody, or just about everybody. My father and mother were against it because they felt it, it was unstable. And as middle-class family, they wanted me to bring the family up a notch rather than drop down two notches. <laughs> so I was uh, not exactly supported by them uh, spiritually. They, however or uh, in my corner when I needed them, and I appreciated that. But I went on to, uh, uh, to leave a very good job that I'd gotten out of school. I got a master's degree in composition at the University of North Carolina. And I served in the Navy for 11 years, so two in World War II, in active duty, and two in Korean. <clears throat> and when I got back uh, from, from that, I was all for doing my career in, in composition. So uh, I had just married uh, Nancy Alt, who's been with me now for 67 years. And uh, uh, we moved to New York. She was a, <clears throat> a professional uh, model in Philadelphia, where I met her. And uh, she also was on radio and television particularly a show opposite Ernie Kovacs. He was a comic at the time. And yeah. He was his foil on television. And that went on for a while. And then uh, we got married, and she joined me uh, in New York. And I set out to have a career in New York. I had some things in various shows that, that were uh, running, uh, contributed uh, uh, special material to reviews. The review was very popular in those days in New York. And uh, uh, about uh, two years in, my my agent said, "I want you to uh, I want you to go over and, and play some things for the Chevrolet Show people. They are looking for a professional composer from New York." And I said, "Fine." In those days, I thought that was. Uh, Dinah Shore show, which was called the Chevrolet oh, show. Sure, yeah. Be the USA in your Chevrolet. It turned out it wasn't that at all. These were executives from the top level of Chevrolet in Detroit who wanted to put on a huge show 
to introduce the new models of Chevrolet for the year 1957. This happened in 56. So I went over and took my brother-in-law. He and I had been doing an act in a 6th Avenue nightclub. And we uh, we were well rehearsed in it, so I thought that's the best way to audition my material because I had written the act. And uh, we went to, to the audition, and we followed a lot of very good people, and some of them had Broadway credits, and some of them had Hollywood movie credits. And uh, <clears throat> the two, two, three days later, my agent called, and he said, uh, you got the job. And I said, well, that's a surprise to me. He <laughs> says, it's a bigger surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea. Uh, that we had a chance at all. He was doing me a favor because I was fairly new in his uh, corral. And uh, so uh, he sent me over this thing, and uh, my brother-in-law and I pulled it off. So uh, <clears throat> I went to work and found out just what this was, that it was a huge Broadway-style show, uh, uh Budgeted at three million dollars, as you can imagine. No, I can't. <laughs> In those days, Broadway got by for hundreds of thousands of dollars. A musical, for instance, My Fair Lady, was four hundred and forty-six thousand dollars. This was a big show. They had thirty-six actors for the Detroit version, and then they, at the same time, they put on uh, five satellite shows in Seattle and San Francisco and Dallas and Atlanta. And uh, from there, I think, well, New York, of course, ended up in, in New York, where I got to see it for the first time. But the, the, it, it struck me at the time that this was something I really liked to do, that there was a, 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 there was a kind of a compatibility with the, with the way I wrote and how I felt about things, and I found it very easy to fit uh, for me. I feel like a lot of and people I, would be afraid of that uh, uh, working for a corporation. Did that scare you at all creatively? No. Uh, uh, for one thing, the, cre the, the corporations were much friendlier in the 1950s. Uh, they have become more powerful and more... Uh, self-involved uh, uh, in, since then, and more separate from their, uh, separated from their, uh, the people who work for them, their, their uh, <coughs> sales forces, particularly. Uh, back in those days, they were doing things for their sales forces in order to increase the, the, uh, the compatibility between labor and, and um, and the, the officers in the company, and they, would, they did a good job of that. So they were not particularly um, uh, frightening, although what you had to do for them was to, to first of all, it had to be first rate. Uh, they, were, they were very uh, well aware of whether this was going to help them sell products. And, and you had to be willing to rewrite and rewrite fast because they had you, it was a schedule to me. It wasn't like you could put it off. Sure. What was the first song? Do you remember the first song you wrote for these? 
for that? I was I was writing it with uh, with Saul Shore, who was uh, a writer who worked in Detroit with the people, and he was constantly with these executives, uh, and he would they would. Uh, <laughs> Uh, tell him what they wanted to happen with these shows, and then he would write lyrics and send them to me in the mail, and I would write them. But among those first ones was one called Chevrolet Proud, uh-huh. which, which was a kind of uh, fight song uh, for the company to to wake people up to the fact that the, that they were a very important part of the economy in the country, and that they should feel that that. Uh, Pride in that in that fact. But, Steve, have uh, you heard that one? Proud, proud Chevrolet, proud, proud, proud Chevrolet, proud. Yes, I have. Okay, I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about that is, uh, if, if Hank wrote it very early on, Chevrolet loved that song so much it became like the uh, one of their core bits of internal myth-making, and it shows up on a 1976 record that Hank otherwise had no involvement with, but they were still using it like 20 years later as one wow. of their keystones. That's, that's and, true. It became their anthem. That's nuts. Wow. That's that's a... I don't... You know, uh, we, I, again, we, we've got Steve and, and David here, and they both have talked about kind of their journey with this whole... Uh, the whole corporate musical world. Were you aware of how quickly were you, did you become aware of other people working in the same industry as you were? Uh, very gradually, because uh, we were we, we didn't talk about it much. Mm-hmm. For one, we were let in on trade secrets, and oh, we right. wrote about trade secrets, and they didn't want their competition to know. So they kind of swore us to secrecy, and and uh, we didn't feel necessary because of two factors. One was we wanted to get the next job, and the other one was that the, that the theater colony in general considered the industrial show as a kind of uh, uh, poor relative of Broadway. And we were looked down upon as people who were merely uh, part and parcel of a kind of uh, commercial venture that was a sidelight of the Broadway effort. And of course, we were writing in the Broadway style, but that was true. But uh, it was kind of considered a, a cut below legitimate theater that a legitimate actor or, or writer or composer would only indulge in between engagements. Ah, okay. How? What did it take for you to sort of realize that that might be a bunch of hooey and that you're just working just as hard as everybody else? Well, I, for one thing, I was able to provide well for my family. Yep. And that, of course, I had a wife and two girls. And that was very helpful because I could put them through school and do all the things I needed to do. Bill, uh, by the wrong about the, about the 19, about 1960, though, uh, I, uh, for some reason, I went cold. Uh, uh, in the, the phrase for it in New York was, I couldn't get arrested. Mm-hmm. I had the, uh, uh, the, the willingness and the time to do further industrials, but there weren't any coming. Other people had come up and charmed their way into the, uh, the sections of the production companies, and I somehow was considered old hat after the fifth or sixth show, and 
And suddenly, in 1960, I think it was, I was on my own. So I ended up uh, being the musical conductor of uh, an off-Broadway show called All Oysters, an unpromising <laughs> title. Uh-huh. <laughs> in that show was uh, John Voigt, for instance, a young, very young John Voigt, and Bill Heyer. Bill Heyer was kind of the MC of the show, and uh, he he wrote his own material, and it was very funny. And about uh, two weeks out, the director came to me and he said, do you have any review material at home? Uh, I'd be glad to look it over because we're going to replace a lot of the pieces in the show. The show doesn't play right now. And I said, sure, and I brought in six pieces, and four went into the show. They asked Bill the same thing, and he came in with about six pieces, and four were put into the show. So our four pieces, my four pieces, and his four pieces, four pieces, were probably the thing that kept that show going for the entire season. Wow. So I got really, I, I, I became as interested, from my point of view, in conducting the show, as, as how his numbers went, as I was as how my numbers went each night. And finally, we decided, well, look, you know, if we can help this show along with our numbers, why can't we write one together, a show, Off-Broadway Review, that would really be good when it would be all our material. So we sat down and started to write uh, an Off-Broadway uh, musical. But it took us 15 years to write it and get it on because wow. I brought him into the industrial show field because he was funny and we now I could act to add to the fact that I could write good tunes to add the fact that he could do funny dialogue so we were able to com- combine and uh, to from that point on be uh, very successful in attracting uh, clients that's that's a remarkable story uh, I, I want to know Steve, what was the first thing of Hanks that you ever heard? I think the first one I found was Diesel Dazzle. That mm-hmm. was 1966, a Detroit diesel engine show, and it had uh, future household names in it performing, like Hal Linden before he broke through, uh, David Hartman before he became like a nationally known TV newsman. Wonderful people and just beautifully produced and crafted and insane songs you can't get out of your head but they're about diesel engines so that's bb higher bb higher and then i find the 64 rambler show bb higher oh here's the american motors show bb higher somewhere around the third or fourth one i thought all right now i want to find these shows by these people something is tipped over in my mind who are these people can i find them and i started doing my primitive detective work uh, the, this was the dawn of the internet, like 1996. Sure. Somehow I got some information about Hank Beebe and managed to track him down to Portland, Maine, and got him on the phone. I'm sure, Hank, uh, whatever, if you remember anything about this, I'm sure it was the standard template of bewilderment and caution because how can anyone be asking me about this? And if it's a Letterman writer, that can't be good. <laughs> Do you, uh, Hank, do you remember how you felt when uh, Steve first uh, contacted you out of the blue? Bewilderment and caution. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 
Well, he's a comedy writer. We were being made fun of uh, doing the, uh, our shows in New York by the theater colony, so uh, I thought, well, maybe he's just going to play to them. I, I had no idea. But my, the fact that he was interested in my music of that field overcame my uh, bewilderment and caution because I w- was really uh, alone in this whole thing. I was not able to talk about it during the time I was in it. And for someone 50 years later to uh, be interested in what I did back then was most, uh, most, most uh, pleasant for me uh, to be able to talk about that period because I'd never had the opportunity. And it seemed like there was very little in terms of collegial discussions. You knew a couple of the other people in New York uh, socially a little bit, but you, as it turned out years later, you didn't know how many people there were like you across the country over so many years. So you were kind of isolated about this. And so were they. (laughs) Now, it would have been great if we could have all gotten together at the time, but we didn't know about each other. I had no idea, for instance, that there was a huge Chicago uh, field. Uh, I, I thought it was all New York. And uh, even in New York, I knew two other composers and uh, a couple of other writers, but I knew a lot of actors who went around through all these shows. And if they were really good, like Hal Linden was and, and David Hartman, why they were working all the time that they wanted to because uh, they were that good. They, they were quick learners and beautiful singers, and uh, uh, eventually, of course, found their way into other fields in television. But I, was, I, I had no idea. Uh, if, if you had asked me at the end of my 26 years in that field in New York how many other people were in it, I would say probably 100 actors and probably a half a dozen writers, a half a dozen composers, and so forth. And it turns out, you know, there's like hundreds of uh, many, even thousands of, uh, of shows that went on. So it was much, much bigger than I thought. Is it is it interesting to know that sort of at the end of the day, you're the audience you were really writing for is a bunch of guys like Steve? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say like Steve... Uh-huh. Uh, well, he's he's a very unique person. So that is I can't true. The guys like Steve, but <laughs> I was I was aware because when I was in New York, I had to sell my work. I, I went there for the, the purpose of finding a market for my work, and so I had to sell it. And I saw how difficult selling is. How how and if you do it every day, nine to five, as the people I was writing for. I had a sense of, uh, of kinship with them, but I knew that they had a much tougher job than I ever did because I'd write some, something for six weeks and then I'd go out and try to sell it for two. But they'd go all the time, nine to five, and sometimes longer than that. Uh, they're in and out of people's offices. They're having to, uh, uh, to adapt to other people's schedules. They're having to take no for an answer. Uh, lots of times, uh, rejection is very hard uh, for anybody, but for somebody who's a professional salesperson, it must be terrible. 
So you knew you had this kinship with the people in the audience of your shows, people who were pounding the pavement every day trying to sell sell I their did. products, but I also how... sell their personalities. But what you yeah. would have been astonished by in 1980 or whatever was the idea that someday this special narrow audience material will break out of its little shadowy corral and find new ears. <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. I couldn't quite hear what you said. Oh, it was beautiful. It was eloquent. Bad. Yeah, it was very nice. <laughs> no, it's just Much that <laughs> you, you could not have imagined all those years ago that someday completely unrelated audiences would have found some value in this music. That's right. Uh, we, we thought uh, that once it had uh, done its uh, duty, it, once it had provided the service that it was written for to uh, get an audience to change their attitude toward their work, to see the value in it, to be enthusiastic about the products they were selling, uh, to have a, a, a sense of purpose. All of that when, that, when the music had accomplished that, when the show had accomplished that, then we all considered that it was over and the slate was wiped clean and we go back to work on the next one. And uh, I didn't think about it. I didn't see half the shows that I wrote uh, because I was writing the next one and there was no, no opportunity for that. But uh, for someone like Steve to come along 40, 50 years later, of course, it was more like 30 when I met him because I've known Steve for 20 years. But it, uh, for, for someone to come along who uh, had this eccentric adventure going, <laughs> to, for, for him to, to see the value that I saw in, the, in those things, that I saw, that even my family didn't see. My wife did, but my, my parents did not. And uh, uh, for, for someone to come along who, who placed value on that music beyond its original intent, uh, that was very, very uh, heartwarming to me and uh, the beginning of a long friendship. I'm particularly pleased as we talk about the soundtrack that there is a, a pressing plant in the year 2020 that is stamping out vinyl records with selections from Gut to Investigate Silicones and Diesel Dazzle, among many other uh, treasured uh, records that are in the movie and in my collection. But well, I, you showed me, Steve, the, uh, the design uh, on your laptop, and I must say it's a beautiful job. And then uh, when you sent those recent photos, which show that the, the vinyl is a translucent color, it's, Oof, you know, one's so blue and one's red. Uh, it's, it's just a, a wonderful package. Uh, I'm not a collector. Of, 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 I don't have time to collect things. I, I'm much busier in other fields. But, but uh, I know a lot. my grandson, for instance, collects vinyl records, and he's been doing that for two or three years. He's uh, right in the swing of things uh, in terms of of the record business, and buys all of his stuff on vinyl. So I knew that there, something was happening there that was uh, uh, right in, in tune with the, with the uh, market. And he's played some stuff. And I, I still have a player here that, that I play vinyl records on. 
I'm so glad it is on it because it, it gives it a much fuller sound. The CD lasts longer than the, than the cartridge used to, the, that we used to use, uh, the tape cartridge. But the, the CD has a, a, a slightly thinner sound, and I, I can understand why people have gravitated uh, to, the, uh, to the vinyl record because it, uh, it, the sound uh, is much more like you're, you're there uh, where the orchestra or the singers are performing. I mean, yeah, we talk about that all the time on this show. Oh, I can't shut up about it personally. Uh, and I, it's, it's, it's nice to know that your work is getting put out on, on I, I cannot wait to, to handle this record. Uh, and I, I really, I don't know, every time, seeing the movie, but also listening to the two of you talk, uh, it's such a delightful friendship, and I love hearing about it, and I love that you guys get to work together. Um, uh, oh, yeah, we wrote the finale of the show together. It's a delight. It's it's perfect. It's a perfect way to end a movie. Um, uh, Hank, I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be doing it. Well, that was a delight speaking with Hank. Thank you so much for making that happen, by the way. That was oh, great. Yeah. This well, almost didn't happen, actually. Well, so When we were talking a few weeks ago about doing this and what the dates should be, one stretch of time was when I was going to go up to Maine anyway and visit right. Hank, and then for various reasons that didn't work out, but I realized, well, we can still just get him on the phone. Yeah. Uh, when we were at the <laughs> world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, he was not up to traveling to New York from Maine okay. by the time he's in his 90s. But during the Q&A on stage, I called him from my phone and he could hear audience cheering for him. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's no, so good. good. Yeah. That's really nice of you to make that happen. It's huge. It's huge. It's the thing that like I dream of. Like I keep hoping I'll find a comedian to be able to do something like that for because so many of them are undiscovered, sometimes for good reason, but a uh, lot of them are undiscovered. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, just, just you, you let them know that they're loved. And it's, it's, I don't know. That's one of the things I like about this movie. It, yeah. it, it makes me very happy. I think a lot of people who watch the movie then, among the cascading thoughts they have as they chew it over in their mind is, what am I doing in my life that maybe when I'm 90 someone will come to me and say, guess what, this thing that you wrote off as ignored and forgotten, no, we're going to talk about it. So everybody can have that fantasy. Yeah. It may not come true all that often, but when it did, I mean, in this unbelievably grandiose, beautiful, surprising way, it's been great for me to just feel like I helped bring these people to where they belong in terms of recognition and a spotlight. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And also people should remember that, you know, if you do work and that doesn't happen, there's probably somebody who does know who just doesn't have the the impetus to do it the way you did to contact them. They probably love what you do and they just don't yeah. they and, can't suck and it up. How many to call people you. are gonna encounter a, a unbelievably talented and passionate filmmaker who's gonna take it to a level that even <laughs> right. I couldn't have imagined. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you just decided, I'm going to bring a camera with me, not the same story. <laughs> you know, if you're just like, I'm just going to film not this quite, as I go. Not quite, no. It's been a nice little <laughs> document, but not, not a full movie. Um, so um, this album comes out soon uh, on vinyl. It's already out, uh, you know, digitally, right. but uh, you can get it on vinyl very soon. Uh, Dave, uh, where can people find you if you want them to? And is there anything else coming out that people should keep an eye out for? 
Uh, well, the movie is still on Netflix mm -hmm. in the U.S. and available on iTunes and Amazon. Um, and then you can find us on Twitter at Bathtubs Over B-Way, B-W-Y, mm -hmm. and on Instagram and Facebook. And we will um, be updating people on, on the vinyl release uh, as soon as we have the info. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, more projects to come. We're, we're uh, brainstorming some things right now. So. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if they'll be about vinyl or show tunes, but <laughs> they will partake in that spirit, I think. We both connect on that. But, uh, as I was saying, just thrilled with the people who said we are going to make this vinyl release yeah. top quality. It's got this 12-page booklet in it with oh, good. beautiful yeah. photos from like when we were recording the vocals That's for awesome. the final number, awesome. so some behind-the-scenes stuff like that, as well as beautiful stills from the movie. And uh, I wrote liner notes. Deva's written her notes about her thoughts on oh, the great. movie. And it, uh, everything's all laid out with all the facts we know about the songs. In some cases, some even now are completely unknown because these things were so scattershot in how well they were documented. We still have things like composer unknown. Oh, composer unknown. Oh no, okay. Yeah. That drives me crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um nuts. yeah, a lot of really fun stuff in that in that whole vinyl package. Thanks to Mondo. Yeah. And yeah. As I say in the liner notes, it's a beautiful sort of closure in a way the the whole thing began in 1993 when i was gathering the records for the letterman bit mm -hmm. and the very first industrial i ever found was a general electric show uh written by john kander and fred ebb who people know from chicago and cabaret and mm -hmm. walter marks who i'm now friendly with did i gotta be me uh mm -hmm. broadway shows but that was a double vinyl album set because this General Electric Power Show was so huge they needed two vinyl discs and now in the year 2020 it has come all the way around to a double record set celebrating this whole world. That's so good. Yeah. I also don't understand why they weren't all musicals. I've got an IBM one that is just a bunch of sketches. Yeah. Which was appropriate to talk about on this show but there's no music mm -hmm. so it's kind of dull. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, once you bad. get a taste for it. Yeah. Where's my corporate musicals? Yeah. I don't want to yeah. hear just the, yeah. So I mean, the acting's great. It's all, it is top-notch, you can tell. And it was just recorded at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, like where a bunch of other crazy great stuff has been recorded. But yeah, it's not, once I found out about the movie, you know, I was like, oh, damn it, that's what I should be. <laughs> I'm not going to. I've decided, we talked about this last time. This is your thing. I'm never going to deal with it. I just, uh -huh. I like knowing that you're the one yeah. archiving. I <laughs> love the feeling of, like and we may have talked about this before the mm -hmm. uh, song poem records mm -hmm. and the people who like my friend Don Bowles is pretty far into that and I think that is taken care of yeah I can just enjoy what they've collected and uh -huh. not not be up all night worrying about whether it's all going to slide off the edge into the darkness uh -huh. we've done a good job with ours but there are so many other categories of this and you deal mm -hmm. with this what, with what you do yeah. finding lost comedians and championing uh, work that may have been overlooked. There are uh, thousands and millions of people who do variations of this. You probably shouldn't take on too many at once. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> believe me. Uh -huh. um, and you're Pants Steve on Twitter, right? Pants Steve on Twitter and uh, I think uh, Instagram. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely something on Instagram. <laughs> Yeah. Um, seriously, Steve and David, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, please, people, go buy that soundtrack. Go watch the yeah, movie. I wonder how yeah. it'll happen. I mean, is there like going to be like 
will it be just for sale in stores or on a website? We don't know. I don't question. know. We're, we don't know yet. I will keep an eye out on my record store. So I've, okay. got, I've got my regulars that I will check out for sure. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. Um, and thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!